Welcome to Equinox, where Rob and I are striking the balance between the light and the dark. This is episode 68. My name is Joseph Darnell, and I'm joined by my good friend, Dr. Rob Carter. How are you doing, sir? Joe, I am doing very well. How about yourself? I'm doing well. It's great to be back on the show with you. I haven't seen you lately. Yeah, I was quarantined for a week uh, due to COVID-19 exposure. Mm. I, mean, I didn't get it, and I've been vaccinated, and I'm not worried about it, but you know, the boss said stay yeah. home. I said, okay. Yeah, you gotta take the precautions. Yeah, you, you like working from home? Did, did you not get out at all? Did you not run any errands, you know, start to Honestly, I didn't. Cabin fever? Yeah, I'm getting cabin fever now, and I'm low on groceries, so it, it's time to go. Yeah. But, but no, I just pretty much stayed at home. Okay. Had a lot to do, so I was very busy. Well, good. You've been just working for the ministry, writing things, researching things? Yep. I had an article come out today um, called The Forging of the Israelite Nation on creation.com, and I have one coming out next Tuesday called Breaking or Breaching the Barrier, and I'm talking about the destruction of the Weissman Barrier, which is interesting because it's about the same exact context as today's discussion. Yes. Weissman and, and Haeckel, who we're talking about today, were contemporaries and German. I'm sure they knew about oh, each other, okay. if not known each other. Interesting. Hmm. Wild. Very good. Well, I've been doing a whole lot of video content, you know, making videos for the ministry as usual. I got to do something fun. By the time this episode comes out, I will have this new article episode. You know, normally I have this other podcast I do for the ministry where I read an article from the website and the site has covered hundreds and hundreds of science and creation and Bible subjects in their articles. But I, I really had some fun with this episode because my favorite animal, do you know what my favorite animal is, Rob? Uh, panda bear. Good guess. Close. <laughs> Owls. Owls. Owls are my favorite. Yes. Owls are not close to pandas. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, God made both. Okay. All right, all right. So owls are pretty awesome. I love owls. And I discovered that we have an article. All right. Which owl? You know, I'm really not partial. Oh, okay. I like them all. Growing up, I was not crazy about barn owls. I didn't like the shape of their funny features, their, their funny eye features, the, the, the plumage around their eyes hmm. looking like a heart, just kind of like weird. But I got used to it. Okay. I like the ear tufts on the top of the other owls. So, so anyway, I, I think it was from reading Winnie the Pooh when I was a kid. Oh, interesting. But so we have an article about owls and I was like, this is, uh, this is great. I'm going to read this article. And then I got carried away and I went to a stock video website and I found all these video clips of owls and I just turned the whole article into an article with video. Cool. So... Yeah, first time I've ever done that. Cool. Just gone a hog wild on making a article into spoken word track and then giving it video footage like it's a, a nature documentary. Oh, good for you. That sounds very interesting. Yeah, I had a lot of fun doing that. A little bit crazy. Crazy for me. Speaking of animals, you want to tell the story about the French beekeeper tackling Asian hornet invasion with homemade trap? Yes, apparently um, there's some Asian hornet problems over in France and hornets can just do a, a bad job on a honeybee colony in, in very short order. I mean, they'll, they'll land on there and they'll just rip all the heads off the, off the bees and just destroy the whole colony. It's very sad. And so this guy's like, I've lost enough colonies. I'm not going to lose any more. So he made this contraption where basically a hornet gets in and can't get out, but the bees can go in and out because they're smaller. And he puts it on the beehive and hornets just get trapped in it. And it's like, this guy's brilliant. This guy deserves a gold star. Yeah. So, I mean, that what else? so cool. Yeah, so I'm, I'm constantly worried about, about hornets getting into my beehive or birds picking off my bees or whatever. And I'm like, man, you know, a little 
mechanical, not mechanical, physical, is that the right word? Geometric thing <laughs> that only lets bees through. That is just the smartest thing ever. So good for him. That is so cool. I love hearing about this sort of technology. Uh, it, traps are really fun. We could, could we just do a whole episode about traps? We've had episodes about weaponry and explosives. We ought to do traps. I guess we could. Bear traps and snares. And uh, what other kind of traps are there? Uh, pits with leaves on top. <laughs> of course, because that's you so often <laughs> in real life. <laughs> Swiss Family Robinson, they trapped a tiger. And then one of the pirates fell into the trap. Ooh, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's practically historical. That's historical fiction. It's nearly history. Actually, Swiss Family Robinson was an amazing book. It is. I watched the Disney version so many times as a kid. The Disney movie was blasphemous. It was awful. Yeah. First of all, is that the, the kid who goes all the time? Oh, it's like, very oh, yeah. gouge my ears out. But the book is very Christian. I mean, yeah, excellently. The movie, no Christianity, sucks it right out. And the one time there's any Christianity, the mother's praying while the father is rolling his eyes and the sons are giggling. Oh, right. Good point. And I was like, oh, you guys, that was terrible. Anyway. Yeah, it was poor taste in Disney's part for even those times. They sometimes made films with some Christian values, but even then, that, yeah, that was kind of a disappointment. Yeah. Anyway. Hmm. But great book. I, I, I have heard wonderful things about it. I don't know why, but I've never read it. Well, get on it, man. Yeah, I that and, on it. Yeah. and Robinson Crusoe. That's an amazing yes, book. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah, I've seen the movie, heard about it, but I actually read the book. It's like, what on earth? It's all about this guy being redeemed through suffering alone, and he becomes a Christian because of his loneliness and despair. It's like, wow, this is awesome. Okay, how about another topic here? How about survival techniques? Uh, I don't really know any except what I've watched on YouTube and Bear Gillis. I mean, okay. <laughs> well, when you learn some, Rob, what you got to do is start living out in, outside the house. Yeah, well, I did the, the, the Boy Scout Wilderness Survival Merit Badge, but that was fake. I mean, you, you build a little stick house covered in leaves. You had to sleep in it overnight. Ooh, it's not really wilderness. <laughs> <laughs> so the other story, another story that we wanted to share, Rob's got here. Amazing. New sense in dog noses. Amazing. The ability to detect heat. What? What? <laughs> I, I read this like, what? <laughs> yes. They have infrared sensors on their nose. This is crazy. That wet black thing can actually locate warm temperatures, as in bodies at night. That is so cool. Now, it's not like they can see long distances with their nose. Right. But they can detect, you know, 10, 15 feet away, something at body temperature or not. What? I mean, that's a, that's a sixth sense. That is so cool. Yeah. They they already have like, you know, I don't, I don't remember what the number is, like 100,000 times our smell capacity. Which would drive me insane if I could smell everything like that. That would just drive me insane. But, you know, dogs, <laughs> a significant portion of their brain is turned over to smelling. And now we learn that it's also a heat sensor, like a rattlesnake. You know, rattlesnake, they have those pits, the pit vipers. They have those pits on the side of their head that they can detect and orient themselves to heat. Like a mouse or a rabbit or, you know, your leg. But now dogs can do it too. What on earth is the world coming to? So would this also be true of other animals that we take for granted, like cats or uh, I guess not birds, they have beaks? I don't know. Uh, what about other snout creatures? Snout creatures. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yeah. Pigs, cats, dogs. Yeah. I, I don't know. Can a pig sniff heat with its snorter? 
No. That's a thought. That's cool, though. It's crazy that this is the sort of thing that we would easily overlook. Yeah. And then one day we just put a few pieces of the puzzle together and go, wait a minute, guys. Look at this over here. Exactly what they did. And then new discovery in science. Now, if anybody wants to get the original article, that's going to be in the show notes, too, with this episode. Absolutely. I worked hard getting those notes in there so we can have the link for people. Dogs can smell heat. (laughs) (laughs) As we ease into our main topic, Mm -hmm. there's a couple of things that I flagged this week that were just so perfect. This first one, a very important, highly influential, very much cited, groundbreaking, you know, lays down the groundwork for an entire field of study has just been retracted. What? It was a study on honesty. <laughs> there was there was fraud in the most important paper on honesty. <laughs> wow. Okay, would this affect anything that we kind of take for granted as common knowledge that well, our listeners are taking for granted? Innumerable different ways this study has influenced society. So, you know, when they say, how many people cheat, how many people don't cheat? They would look at this study. You know, how do you get people to not cheat? They would look at this study. Basically, what these people did was they, um, they asked people a, que- a series of questions. And at, either at the beginning or the end, they had a, I've told the whole truth and you sign your name. And they figured out that people who said that at first were much less likely to lie than people who said it after they answered the questions. And that kind of, you know, intuitively, that makes sense. I can believe that very easily. You make a statement, I'm not going to lie, and then they ask you questions, and you're going to tell the truth. Okay. But if you said, hey, you're going to have to sign a statement, and you don't get to it to the end, even though you know it's coming, and well, the authors of the paper have retracted it. They did not necessarily lie, but they did retract the paper. The idea is that the data that they got from an insurance company was flawed. Oh, okay. So... A little bit of egg on their face, but you know, guys, hey, I didn't cheat here. I didn't actually lie about my paper about lying. The data that I based it on was, had some errors in it. Sorry. Okay. So there's a different there's different reasons why papers are retracted. In fact, I looked up on uh, retractionwatch.com. Very important website for us scientists to follow. You know who's getting caught cheating and why. And their their top they have the top ten articles right there on their website. And these are the articles that were so cited the most times before they were retracted. And the first article has a couple thousand citations. In other words, some other paper said, this guy here said this. They quote something from the paper and then they put a reference to it. And some of those papers, in fact, most, all of them actually, but some more than others, after they got retracted, they kept on getting cited as an authority. It's really easy for that to happen oh, in yeah. general. Yeah. Misinformation gets around. I've got... Uh, I don't know how many thousands papers as PDFs saved in a folder on my, my, my laptop here. And oh yeah, I read something like 10 years ago and I'll go, oh yeah, there it is right there. And I'll grab the paper and I'll cite it and I'll put it in something I'm writing. I would never think to say, hey, has that been retracted? I would never consider that. It would take just an inordinate amount of time to verify again and again as the years go by. Yes. Now, I'm sure there's some scientific something where you can have all the papers that you want in some database somewhere. And I, but I, I don't know that. I, I save them as PDFs. I've been doing that since PDF started in the 90s. Before that, it was a dime a page and a photocopier in the library. And I filled up a filing cabinet during my PhD work, photocopying papers out of journals for my doctoral work. And I spent thousands of dollars on photocopying. 
and so did every other graduate student because you needed copies of those papers you couldn't go to library all the time and a whole filing cabinet full of it and i ended up throwing almost all that i went through all of them i saved some good ones i tossed everything else so pdfs are awesome (laughs) they sure are Digital photo libraries in general, text, oh, plain text files. I love them. <laughs> yes, me too. <laughs> now, if a scientist produces something that turns out to be wrong and has to be retracted, there are four different categories that have been noted that would cause a retraction. One is there are errors. Either you added something wrong or a formula, or you type something wrong into a database. It's just, you know, human error. No, no, nothing intentional. It was a mistake. You know, and if the mistake is such that it reverses your conclusions, ah, whoops, okay, that paper's out. That is not a career-ending thing. It happens. It's not good, but you're not going to get fired or, you know, lose your reputation if you, if you make a mistake because anyone can make a mistake. The second category, though, is outright fraud. Making up stuff, claiming things are true that aren't, running experiments and writing down different numbers and your machine gives you duplicating information that you got from one experiment, you just throw it into another experiment. You said you did it twice and you actually didn't. Those are all examples of fraud and they're actually very common and it's really sad. Hmm. Uh, some people get caught for, for duplicating information and they're like, hey, what, what, what's going on here? I wrote a paper for this journal. I wrote another paper for another journal. Yeah, I use the same data. F- so what? And other people are like, no, you can't do that. And so there's, there's arguing that way, but that's not the same thing as outright, you know, making stuff up out of whole cloth. And there have been over the years, or just since my career started, several very important people, very highly published people who are, you know, groundbreaking, setting a trend in their field. And it turns out that all their stuff was garbage. Wow. It's difficult. Another category is uh, questions about data provenance. And that was this the lying paper that got retracted, they didn't know the provenance of their data. They didn't know where it came from. Or once they realized that, hey, uh, there might be a problem with this data source, we didn't know that at the time, but the paper can get retracted. And then the fourth one is public outcry. When people get so angry at something, they demand the paper get taken down. It's bad that it has to come to that. Well, it should never come to that, but it does. And the, the last one that I know of, there's actually a Wikipedia page on it called CreatorGate. And I remember when this came out, I was like, oh, this is, this is not good. These Chinese researchers had published a paper where they got this paper all the way through reviews, all finished, all done. They're giving it one more time to read through it. And one of the authors added the word creator, as in God. They're talking about the hand and the creator did blank. Oh. And that happened after peer review. And then it got published like that and the world exploded. So you're, you're bringing God into science because, you know, science is very atheistic. Mm. And then the, the author's like, oh, well, yeah, that was a bad Chinese translation. It really should have meant this, but, you know, we just translated badly. But, and I, I, felt, I felt very awkward and at unease at this because had I done something like that, I would have been accused of being a liar and deceitful because mm. here I am, an outward Christian in science, and you added, you know, creationist ideas after it went through peer review. You hid this from your peer reviewers and tried to sneak it in. I mean, it's essentially, so they call this creator gate. Uh, one of the authors actually had worked at a, um, a Christian university here in the States as a researcher, professor, or something like that before going back to China to work on this ha- paper on the hand. So those are the four ways you can get a paper retracted. You don't ever want to have a paper retracted, but sometimes it has to be done. Incredible. All right. That's the lead in to today's topic. Hey, Joe, what did we talk about last week? 
We talked about the dark side of science. The dark side of science. Evil sciences. The, yeah, evil science. This is people doing wicked things and trying to, you know, paper it over with, with science. I want to flip that around to not mistaken science and not ignorant science, but deceitful science. It's not evil necessarily. You're not killing people. You're not murdering people. You're not ruining people's lives, but you're pursuing a career that is one giant retraction and you're a famous scientist. So like misleading people? Yes, deliberately and deceitfully lying. And yet you are one of the most famous scientists of the day. You're communicating mm -hmm. with all the other famous scientists of the day. You're inventing words that we still use today. And your ideas will be in textbooks for the next hundred years, even though they're wrong. And you knew they were wrong because you lied about it in the beginning. That's what we're talking about. <laughs> so lying science. And I'm yeah. I, I rack my brain. I, I literally, I'm saying to myself, okay, I know examples of people who made mistakes, people who pulled the wool over other people's eyes, people who outright lied. But what's the worst case? What is the, the absolute worst scientist of all time? And I thought of an example, a guy named Ernst Haeckel. And everyone just said, who, what? Yeah. Now, this is the, right. the most influential liar you've never heard of. He's an evolutionary scientist, about 25 years younger than Darwin. Uh, he read Darwin's book uh, after he was done with college. And very soon after that, he's an atheist. He was a Christian in the beginning. Now he's an atheist. His beautiful wife that he loved dearly died when he was 30 years old. Now he's a bitter atheist. He's also a workaholic and he's very imaginative and very creative. And he takes Darwin's idea and he runs with it. And now Darwin was very coy in the origin of species about, you know, where people came from and are there different classes of people. Haeckel was not. He went whole hog into the racist territory. Mm. And the number of things that he, he wrote that were fraudulent is shocking. And no one, I mean, people, some people did try to call him out, but it didn't work because he was too popular. Really? That's terrible. Well, his nickname, he has several nicknames. One of them was Darwin's Bulldog on the Continent. Darwin's Bulldog was Huxley. Thomas Huxley, the grandfather of Aldous Huxley, who wrote Brave New World. So Thomas Huxley is Darwin's bulldog. He's the guy who basically, he got Darwin to write this book. Darwin, as we talked about last year, an introvert, you know, holed up in his little house and he won't entertain strangers and he's afraid of the world. That guy, he got Darwin to write the book. Then he got that book into the hands of every influential person. That was Huxley. He was the guy who pushed Darwinism much more than Darwin did. Well, Darwin's bulldog on the continent is Ernst Haeckel, this younger scientist who apparently has an axe to grind with the world. His other nickname was the gadfly of Jenna. <laughs> wow. How did you earn that well, nickname? He was a professor at the University of Jena, J-E-N-A, Jena, or Jena, I don't know how to pronounce it in German, in Germany. And they just called him the gadfly of Jenna. I mean, whoa, <laughs> this guy must have been mean as a snake, but also... Super smart and like a bulldog, grabs onto something and doesn't let go. Not a guy you want to wrestle with. He's also a flat out liar and you can't catch him. So he gave us terms. Tell me if you've ever heard this term ecology. Yes. Yeah. He invented that word. Oh, does that mean it's, it's kind of no. questionable? I'm, my, my degree is in coral reef ecology. Okay. That word wouldn't have existed if it weren't for Ernst Haeckel. Wow. Okay. okay how about a phylum? Yeah, I've heard you mention that word several times in the show. Yeah, kingdom phylum, class order, family, genus, species. Yeah, phylum, he invented that. How about phylogeny? 
Yeah, yeah, I've heard that as well. It, it's related to the phylum word too, right? Yeah, it's 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 basically it's the uh, the order of all the species in the world. Okay, yeah, going back to common ancestor in his case. Okay, ontogeny, probably not that one. Not so much. I've maybe heard it once, and I haven't given it a lot of thought. Okay. Probably should have looked it up. Okay, that's the development of the embryo. Okay. Okay. Protist. No, not that one. Single-celled nuclear organisms. Amoeba. Yes, I have heard that. Amoeba, paramecium. Okay, protists. But yeah, yeah. Okay. Now, these three last ones deal with um, embryological development. So, gastrula is that ball when it first, the embryo ball when it first starts poking a hole to make the mouth or the anus. That's the gastrula. Blastula is the ball of cells. And morula is a, another term for a different stage of the ball of cells. So anyone who's studying biology is going to learn the different stages of embryological development that are going to be using Haeckel's terminology. So this guy had a huge influence on the development of scientific thought. Wow, yeah. It's crazy. Okay, he comes up with something that he called the biogenic law. That is quite a statement to call, call it a law. There are no laws in biology. Laws are in physics and chemistry huh. only. There are no laws in biology. Evolution is not a law. There's no laws in biology, except he says that there's this thing called the biogenic law. Mm, the biogenic law. And the phrase is this. I remember my freshman professor at Georgia Tech. Out of the three quarters, because we're on a quarter system then, at three quarters of my freshman year, I had him for two of my three freshman year biology classes and in each class at least once very arrogantly and extremely confidently he stood on the stage and said ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny <laughs> and i didn't know what he meant the first time second time I was like yeah again yeah. third time okay now i know what he's talking about but these are haeckel's phraseology and haeckel's idea ontogeny the development of the embryo recapitulates restates phylogeny evolutionary history that is such a wordy way to describe something so simple. Nobody would say that. No. But I've heard this concept described several times. In that the embryo goes through the various stages of evolution as it develops. Right. This is called, in his mind, the biogenic law. He just wanted to sound authoritative. That's why he uses words like this. And it's a lie. It's completely not true. It's ridiculously stupid it's completely contradictory to any, anything in embryology and any competent embryologist can look at the embryo and say, no, you're wrong. But people regurgitated this. I mean, I took biology, this would be 1987, 1988, a hundred years after Haeckel, people were still regurgitating that phrase authoritatively and it was wrong. And they knew it was wrong about 90 years ago. What on earth? This man has, has such a pervasive That's influence. Terrible. Oh, it's ter yeah. totally terrible. Totally terrible. But what an influence this guy had. Mm -hmm. So, he writes a book. Haeckel's 1876 book was of fundamental importance for the public perception of science, specifically evolution. And it was filled with lies. Things that he had just made up. Golly. <laughs> wow. Do we understand why what was behind all of his lies for fact, you know? Or no. Is it, uh, no, yeah. what, what okay. drives a man to these depths, I don't know. But this is... Right. In, in this book is recapitulation theory. 
That's the ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. The idea of the embryo goes through the evolution as it develops. But this is, first of all, why would it do that? Why would you develop into this and then develop into something else, then develop into something else? Why wouldn't you shortcut all of that? Duh. Second, you know, you've probably heard that at one stage in development, the embryo has gill slits. You heard that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That is completely not true. <laughs> it's bogus. It's, it's totally bogus. It science. is 100% bogus. It is not true. The embryo never has gill slits. Now, it does have like a triple chin at one point when you have this like under the where the eyeballs are there and you get this little, it looks like a embryo looks like a comma. You know, the fat head and then, a, 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 you know, the backbone and the tail and it's bent over. And so, the, the cells in the front, they look like a triple chin. Those have nothing to do with respiration. They develop into the jaw and things like that. There's no, there's no gill slits. There's no uh, uh, veins and arteries that go to that area for respiration. There's nothing there to suggest anything for respiration. The embryo, have you ever heard that at one point we have a tail? Yes. Okay. <laughs> well, the tailbone, it, uh, <laughs> all right, no. But no, no, completely, absolutely fraudulent, a lie, completely. But when you look at an embryo, oh yeah, you can see it, but it's not a tail. We never have a tail. Ever. It, it, yeah, it's basically just the spine. It's the, the, exactly the, what you're looking at. The yeah. first thing in the embryo that starts to develop is the um, is the spine. First, it's the ridge that will form the the nervous system, the um, the spinal cord, and the backbone. You don't need legs when you're an embryo. The first thing you need is a nervous system, and so the spine grows first, and you get little teeny legs, and are much smaller than they will be later, and they're smaller in proportion to the spine, so it looks like a tail, that's just your cossacks. You still have those bones. The tail never falls off. It never gets resorbed. There's never a tail. Have you ever heard that at one point during development, you're covered in hair? So, as like a, a not an embryo, but a little bit further along? Yeah. That doesn't really make any sense. Why would you grow all that hair and then Oh, because that, lose that's the monkey it. stage. You already went through okay. the fish stage. Now you're going through the monkey stage. It's not true. Okay, the baby's course. never covered in hair. It's also during that stage that the embryo or fetus uh, craves bananas. But, you know. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, the, <laughs> those are three powerful myths given to us by Haeckel that weren't true. And in his book, he has all these embryo drawings. He faked them. He literally changed the size and shape of heads and all sorts of different body things to make things look more similar than they really are. Uh, that's just it's deceitful uh, and he's like well uh, it's uh, so bad well i was just trying to you know fill in incomplete data uh, dude no you drew them what do you mean incomplete you couldn't see something in a microscope so try again right and plus he was an extremely accomplished artist as we'll get to later he was an excellent artist he was an amazing artist and you're telling me that you couldn't faithfully reproduce something you were seeing here what about over here oh yeah you lied about that too but we'll get that in a minute I've honestly really been impressed with that artwork. I, I've looked at it and I've thought about it too. Well, again, it's like he just really wanted to come off as authoritative. Yeah. So he knew exactly what he needed to do to convince. Yeah. Well, he also drew a series from chimpanzee to gorilla to orangutan to African and had the African sitting in a tree mm. and made his head look much more like an ape. When he's trying to really push an argument... The chimpanzee, the orangutan, the gorilla, they don't even look right. They're just wrong looking. Well, the African doesn't look right either. But he made it look a lot more monkey-like. And he's sitting in the tree because he was a total racist. Ah, 
Yeah. So <laughs> it's bad. So besides the fact that he <clears throat> monkeyed around with his drawings, <laughs> he also, I believe on purpose, like, oh no, it was an accident. No, he did it on purpose. He duplicated some of his drawings and named them one, maybe, you know, I don't remember what it was. I mean, dog, human, chicken, or something like that. But he actually had duplicate drawings in there. So yeah, they looked real similar because it was the same picture. <laughs> <laughs> but nobody noticed for forever. And then wow. someone finally went down and actually drew some competent embryologists, drew pictures of embryos at the stages that he claimed, and they looked like nothing like one another. Hmm. Wow. Okay, so. Um, this guy. Have you ever heard the phrase Monera? Mm, I, I don't recall. All right, it's a kingdom. Okay. That's no, a phylum, it's a phylum. The Monera are bacteria. Yeah, now that you mentioned that, that makes more sense. I think I have heard that, ex- that term. Okay. Now, kingdom phylum, there's also um, domain. I, I get very confused at this point because everything has changed on me since I was in school and it changed again since I was in graduate school. So, they're on a third way of doing it now. And domains didn't even exist, I think, until uh, Carl Woos, 1990. I think he invented that. I was in my undergraduate and we, I didn't hear about it when I was an undergraduate. I heard about it when I was in graduate school. It's like, what? And so, but the Monera is a modern scientific terminology thing we use for bacteria. But the original Monera were another fraud perpetrated by Hegel. <sighs> Completely imaginary, very detailed drawings of semi-living things, things that bridged the non-living to the living world. <laughs> so, uh, okay, what do you mean by semi-living? Well, they weren't as alive as an amoeba. But they were almost there. He gave one of them the name Proto Amoeba Primitiva. <laughs> so he gave a scientific genus okay, species name, something that doesn't usually even exist. Usually he was trying really hard, but that time he was just swinging. <laughs> Proto Amoeba Primitiva. <laughs> he didn't care if it sounded real. <laughs> so, so he invented the genus and species of an imaginary thing. And I mean, 70, 70 or 80 pages in a very prestigious journal in 1868 was dedicated to the Monera. Picture after picture after picture of something that, what was this guy smoking? But it doesn't, it's not a drug-induced smoking thing. I mean, his things are precise and perfect and symmetrical, and he's even got them going through these reproductive stages. What on earth? Yeah, wow. And, and also, he's completely rejecting Louis Pasteur's work. Louis Pasteur showed that if you sterilize something, you get no life. The law of biogenesis, if we can call it that, life only comes from life. So maybe there is a law in biology. Hmm. But, the, but see, the thing is, the evolutionists don't believe that because at one point you can have no life and life has to come from no life eventually. So there's not really a law of biogenesis. Anyway, um, ah, try not to get angry. Calm down, Rob. Calm down. <laughs> He's rejecting Pasteur's rejection of spontaneous generation. And being that he believes in Darwin's warm little pond analogy, where you have a bunch of salts and chemicals, and all of a sudden you have some little filament of life of some sort. He's imagining that this can happen, therefore it must happen, therefore it must happen all the time. Oh, okay. In the same way that people say, well, if humans evolved, that means aliens could evolve, that means aliens must have evolved, that must mean that there's millions of alien civilizations out there. Same exact line of thought. And so... He has this world of protoplasm. World of protoplasm. Protoplasm, early seed. Protoplasm, early life. 
Okay. Not life and not non-life. It's in this, this um, what's, uh, where, do, where do babies go when they die in the Catholic faith? Um, pur- not purgatory. Um, limbo. This, this limbo world halfway between life and non-life. Protoplasm. Now, inside of the cell was called protoplasm. We now call it cytoplasm. Huh. There's this, this very vague spiritualist hint of some life force called protoplasm. Okay, that's crazy. And that, oh, wow. and well, scientists they're wrestling with it, and they're they're debating this, and they're and yeah, and this is vitalism sort of thing. And he's this guy's falling right into it. A short time later, Thomas Huxley, remember that name? Mm-hmm. He was examining some deep sea sediments that were dredged up in 1857. So this boat laid a cable between the U.S. and England, middle 1800s. Amazing. It was going to be like a telegraph cable. And while they're doing that, they're taking sediment samples. Now, he's got these jars and he's looking at them and he finds in jar after jar after jar, protoplasm, this slimy, bubbly stuff on the surface of the mud. Now, these jars are preserved in alcohol. There's nothing alive in the jars. And he's like, this stuff is cellular structure, but it's amorphous. But this stuff buds off like it's, you know, budding, like reproducing, but it's not alive. Of course, not alive because they, they killed it. So, the bottoms of the oceans must be covered with protoplasm. Hmm. Therefore, there's a end because it's almost lifelike, like the Monera. It is a direct continuation from humans all the way back the chain of evolution, all the way back to random chemicals. There's no break. There's a continuous chain of being, and life is continually evolving from the protoplasm. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay. He named this material Bathebius. Bathos means deep. Hakelii. Bathebius Hakelii, as in after Mr. Hakel. Oh, brother. And Hakel was tickled pink, and he looked at it. Of course he was. And he, 100%, this is really true. This is the stuff. And it wasn't wow. true. <laughs> that was probably one of his favorite words too. Hakley true. I. <laughs> yeah, no, no. He he probably loved the word true. I, I'm yeah. sure he did. I'm sure he did. Yeah. Um, the Challenger expedition was a deep sea drilling operation uh, in 1875-ish. And there's, of course, chemists on board there too. And you know they're looking at these samples and they're saying, wow. All the samples that preserved in alcohol have a goo, and all the ones that weren't preserved in alcohol don't. So he took a jar of pure seawater with no mud, and he added alcohol to it, and it formed a gooey precipitate. Oh. Called calcium <laughs> sulfate. It was a chemical reaction of the alcohol and the seawater. Bummer. Changes everything. Well, you think it would, but four or five years later, Huxley's still defending this. Ah, Huxley, come on. Haeckel held on until 1883 before he finally let go. And for years he was, well, yeah, but uh, because, um, yeah, he never gave a straight answer. It took him eight years to give a straight answer. And even then he was trying to save his own reputation. Of course he was. So here we got people, Darwin's bulldog and Darwin's bulldog on the continent, pushing evolution with everything they have. They are running roughshod over their opponents. They're getting all their people into high places. In fact, the, uh, um, the Duke of Argyle, this is one of my favorite anecdotes. He was a, a political commentator of the day, and he wrote some scathing uh, reviews. And he wrote about a reign of terror at the hands of the early Darwinists. And he cited Darwin's 
ideas of coral reef development, which were wrong, and everyone knew they were wrong, but no one could say it because they would get run out of academia if they did. And he talked about how the Darwinists excluded all of their opponents and got all of their friends into high places. And if you weren't a Darwinist, there's no way you were going to advance in the world of science or religion. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what? Uh, well, he just wanted to make a point, man. He just really wanted to, <laughs> to reinforce the point. So if you wanted to be a Bible-believing priest in the Anglican Church, good luck, buddy. Yeah, and Santa Claus is not going to give you anything for Christmas no, either. No, they might keep you out in some country little diocese where you've got like five congregants. You're never going to become a bishop. Wow. <laughs> All right, another ex- a bad example. This is a minor one. Don't have to spend much time on it. A picanthrop- Pithecanthropus alalus. Oh, yeah, no. That's a mouthful. All right, it is a Pithecus means ape. Anthropus means man. Pithecanthropus, ape man. Alalus means without speech. Of course, we had to evolve from an ape man who couldn't speak, right? Obviously, because apes, they can't speak. So, in that train, we had to get more human-like, but you can't yet speak. And he had an artist draw a picture of Pithecanthropus alalus. (laughs) I can say it if I don't read it. The word's too long to read. But (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to read it, and I'm stumbling over it. Um, He had an artist draw a picture of... A female nursing and a male, and they both look stupid and they're all covered in hair, but the male's standing upright, sort of. It's the classic ape man picture that we have seen redone many times. It's the family of ape men and an ape woman and an ape baby. And yet, there was no bones. He gave a scientific name to his imagination, just like with the Monera example. But this one, uh, people called him out on this. Like, you can't do this. Because at least in the Monera, he pretended that he was drawing pictures of real things. But this one, everybody knew he had never seen this, no one had anything. But then, very soon after, they discovered Java Man, who had the name Pithecanthropus at first. Now we call it Homo erectus. Mm. Ah, so Java Man went through several name changes there, and now we call it Homo erectus. But again, he's just making stuff up. Now, Darwin, his views on race are troubling. I mean, turn your stomach troubling. And we talked about that in our episode, our two-part episode on Darwin. But he at least was merciful, and he did support William Wilberforce in his anti-slavery efforts. He gave money to Wilberforce, and Wilberforce almost single-handedly got slavery outlawed in the British Empire. So, interesting. Now, here's Darwin, whose writings are distinctly racist, and yet he's donating money to help free slave people. Very curious. But let me read you a translation of something that, um, uh, I almost said Huxley. Um, my brain ankle yes my brain is stopped <laughs> let me read you Pithecanthropus. yes that's what did it that's what yeah um he writes this he writes australian negroes are psychologically nearer to the mammals apes and dogs than to the civilized europeans we must therefore assign a totally different value to their lives their only interests are food and reproduction Many of the higher animals, especially monogamous mammals and birds, have reached a higher stage than the lower savages. <laughs> well, wait a second now. He's German, end of the 1800s, writing about there are human-like looking things that aren't any better than an animal. In fact, some animals are superior to some things that look like humans. 
That would be like an evolutionist claiming that dinosaurs are walking the earth today or something. It's just no. crazy. This is exactly and completely 100% laying the groundwork for Adolf Hitler. Okay. German scientist, you know, lying about all this stuff, incredibly influential. And now the Germans look at Jewish people 50 years later, literally just 50 years later, while this book is still in circulation, while people still remember this guy because he died in 1909 or 1912 or something like that, right before World War I even. And he's saying that, yeah, there might be some people around us now that are actually animals. Mm. And the next step as well is nothing immoral about killing a cow. Let's just get rid of the animals amongst us. And if those are animals, don't let them procreate and definitely don't let them procreate with a white person. Ugh. You see, that is exactly where that went. Right. So his anti-Semitism, and he was a strong anti-Semite, definitely against anyone with dark skin, and he's popularizing evolution, and this is just a major problem. Let me read you a, a quote from a guy named Richard Webster in a book called, or a book or a chapter in a book called Why Fru Freud Was Wrong, Science and Psychoanalysis. He writes this, he goes, Haeckel, however, was not simply a biologist in the sense that we use that word today. He saw himself and was seen by many German intellectuals and artists in the latter part of the 19th century and the early part of the 20th century as the founder of a new scientific religion. He called his philosophy monism and saw himself as a leader of a movement of aggressive rationalism, which would eventually rid Germany of the last traces of superstitious religion and replace Christianity with a religion which glorified modern science. What was driving that man? And why? I mean, who cares about religion? Why would an evolutionist care about religion? That's a very good question. Why does it matter one lick what anyone believes? Because the only rule in life is have more babies than the next guy. In fact, if you think about it, by getting rid of religion... Like, what if that causes us to, like, exterminate half of our own population because we don't have any moral compunction about killing people? Well, then we would actually be harming the human species. Huh. That's kind of what happened in a short time. Hmm. So, that is my analysis of the worst scientific liar that I know of in history. Very good. Yeah. His works has had a pernicious and profound influence upon the entire world and human history. Hmm. And the man should be vilified and said... We still use his words, and we call bacteria Monera now. Monera. Even though the Monera came out of that guy's head. <laughs> <sighs> so, if you know a lot of the things that he has done, do you have a favorite thing that he did contribute to the sciences? Is there anything that you would say like, oh yeah, I do appreciate this? Because he's definitely notorious through and through. All right, yeah, I see you what you're doing. Yeah, he is responsible for some of those. I see what you're doing. Um... No, I'm just curious. It'd be a fascinating well, twist if there was something in particular. Well, no, this that. is good because we should always give the good and the bad and try to give a neutral viewpoint on everything. But I would have a very hard time coming up with something. It's sort of like, you know, um, they're about to take the Robert E. Lee statue down in, um, in, in a big city in Virginia. Right. And they finally did it and they're finally taking it down. Well, you know, Robert E. Lee has a checkered history, even though, you know, because he fought for the South. But there's a lot of very noble things and good things about that man's life. He's an amazing figure. He's not 100% evil at all. Haeckel, I, I, I lost it because of yeah, the okay. example after example after example. I don't trust anything that guy would write. And if we're going to get rid of people with a little bit of questionality in their lives, which you know the, the Me Too movement is doing, right. then Haeckel needs to be expunged. 
and vilified. The problem that I see, though, a lot of times, they're, like, they're tr- trying to take Margaret Sanger. They're trying to get rid of her um, memory in Planned Parenthood because she was such a racist. But in so doing, then Planned Parenthood gets to leave their racist past. And I don't think they should get rid of Margaret Sanger. I think she should always be associated with Planned Parenthood. So, in one sense, cancel culture is actually shooting yourself in the foot. Because once you get rid of all the boogeymen, you forget that they're boogeymen, essentially. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you can't get rid of the guy. And so, he should be mentioned. But people don't even realize how important he was at a critical time in history. And how he pushed the science that just wasn't true. And how it even... I mean, the abortion question today... I am almost certain that in the Roe v. Wade decision, they talked about the cell going through the stages of evolution. I'm certain, because that was a very popular idea at the time. And even if it wasn't brought up in court, I'm sure the Supreme Court justices were thinking about that. And so, you know, woman has a right to privacy. It's just a little fishy. It's not a human yet. See how that reasoning goes? Right. So, Haeckel might have given us Roe v. Wade. Hmm. Yeah. All right. I'm done. I stepped that off right. my soapbox now. I hope I didn't shock too many people. We're going to do a fun one no. next week because that was two, two grumpy episodes in a row. We, we need to do a fun one t- next week. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you everybody for joining us on this quest as well. If you would like to, you can find all the awesome things that are in the show notes with this episode of Equinox in your podcast app or on the website that's available at nightowl.fm slash equinox slash 68. And if you uh, would be so kind, you could also share the podcast with your family and friends, somebody who you know who enjoys science topics. And you can get more of our content from Equinox Plus. We're going to have another bonus episode drop soon. And the links are available if you would like to join our Patreon membership to get Equinox Plus with this episode. And do check out Biblical Genetics. That's Rob's other project. It's available on YouTube as well as at biblicalgenetics.com. And if you want to find me, I'm at JCS Darnell on Twitter. Until next time, goodbye, Rob. Goodbye, Joe. You've been listening to Equinox. That was great, man. And I mean, even though, you know, you sound like a grumpy cat, I, <laughs> I do think that, that that was appropriate. That guy deserves a lot of grumpy cat face emojis and memes and things like that. That would be a good thing to put inside the Equinox circle, like gr- a grumpy cat face. <laughs> Definitely for this episode. <laughs> Everybody will be wondering, why is that there until they get to the after show, <laughs> after the music? <laughs> Did they find this part? <laughs> I was debating on what to title this episode, and I don't have a great title, so if you can think of one, that'd be fine. But you, you saw in the notes, I just talk, I titled it Pants on Fire. I'm not sure if that's appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'll work on it. Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll workshop that one.